Chillicothe Bible Church. Glad that you're here this morning. Uh, if you are a visitor with us this morning, I want to welcome you, extend a special welcome to you. Uh, also, if you're a visitor with us here this morning, it's your first time here, uh, I have a little gift for you, and we'd like to uh, get that to you. Uh, it has one of these very snazzy Chillicothe Bible Church mugs in it, and some information about the church that might answer some questions you might have. Uh, but obviously, um, also you can feel free to call me personally, and I'd be happy to talk with you. But hopefully, too, uh, some of the other folks who are here will make an effort to connect with you and to uh, also welcome you into the church and to uh, help you be part of the family here. So uh, if you're a visitor, see me after the service. I'll be standing right back by that door, and I've got, a, like I say, a present for you. Um, that we would like to get with you and connect with you uh, and help you uh, plug in here. Uh, it is a good thing to sing praise to the Lord and to give glory to the name of the Most High. Amen? Amen. Uh, it's the second week of January. If you made yourself some goals uh, this at the start of the year, two weeks ago, how many of you are still on track keeping all your goals? Okay, no one. All right. <laughs> then this message is for you. <laughs> okay. Um, if you set yourself some goals, a lot of times it's hard to be faithful to your commitments over a long period of time. Amen? Uh, in fact, uh, in our small group last week, we had com conversation about, uh, about New Year's resolutions and so forth, and I was informed that my group does not set resolutions, that we set goals for ourselves, right? Um, I think they like the name better. I think that's about the, the, the major difference. But in any case, uh, a lot of times we quickly find ourselves sliding into old habits because the past tends to be prologue for a lot of us and we find ourselves sliding backwards into things that we uh, have always done. And the pull of our uh, previous life to this point is pretty strong. And a lot of people uh, confronted with the reality that lasting change is difficult find it easier to give up and go back to the old way of doing things, even if the old way is harmful or self-destructive. Uh, and something similar happened in the book of Exodus with the nation of Israel. They had witnessed the plagues, if you remember. They, they lived through all of those. In fact, God made a division on most of them between what happened where the land, where the people of Israel were living and what happened in the rest of Egypt. Uh, so that it was dark in Egypt, but they had light in Goshen where the people of Israel lived. Uh, they had... Uh, uh, there was the death of the firstborn among those of, who were the Egyptians, but among the people of Israel, God passed over them and did not bring judgment on them, and so forth. Uh, on, on and on through, the, like I say, the vast majority of the plagues, there was a distinction made so that the people of Israel would see who their God really was and that he keeps his promises. They had crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground. Uh, they had uh, been provided for on a daily basis with the manna that fell from heaven. Uh, they had stood before the mountain of God, and they had heard the Lord's voice speaking in fire and smoke from the top of the mountain. 
and they knew the law, and they had received it, and they knew God's promises. But when things got difficult, and they weren't working out according to their expectations, what did they do? Well, they reverted back to their former lives and went back to worshiping the kind of gods that were common in Egypt when they were enslaved. And when they did that, as you know, there were disastrous consequences. And at this point in the story, as we're kind of following through the story of the book of Exodus, at this point, they know that they have sinned. In fact, they knew they were sinning when they went into it to start with. They knew that the golden calf was an explicit violation of God's commands to them. And out of uh, completely a, a breaking of God's covenant, but they did it anyway. But at that time, as they were engaged in sin, they didn't care that they were breaking God's commands that they were violating the terms of his covenant with them. I want what I want. It's familiar. I know it's destructive, but so what? I want to do it anyway. At that time, they didn't care. Now they do. And now they're trying to figure out, how do I reestablish my relationship with God after all of my rebellion and sin and all of the destruction that that has brought into my life, how do I start over? How do I renew my relationship with God? And that is a good question. By the way, it's a good question for some of us who knowingly sometimes have gone headlong into rebellion and sin. And we've gotten ourselves very strung out and very far away from God. And now we go... Okay, well now how do I get back? How do I find my way home? How do I reestablish a relationship with God that feels very distant and very cold right now? How do you rebuild a good relationship with God when you have cratered it and knowingly rejected Him at some point? And some of us, like I say, would like to know the answer to that question. We would like to know how to get out of that pit that we have dug for ourselves and fallen into. And uh, this book answers that question right here in chapter 34. And, uh, and this chapter is, or this section of the chapter anyway, is about renewal of your relationship with God after huge failure. After you've completely blown it, what do you do then? What do you do then? And, and this is something that has an ongoing level of relevance, I think. Because most of us, sooner or later, will fail to live up to even the standards that we set for ourselves. And we'll want to know, what do I do now? Is there any hope for me? Can I be restored to relationship with God? Does God still love me? Is he still in covenant with me, even though I broke covenant with him? What do I do now? And this chapter answers that question. So if you've got your Bible, I'd like you to open it up to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, uh, starting from the front. Uh, so if you find Genesis, keep turning until you find Exodus. Um, and then chapter 34. And 
This is what God says here in Exodus 34, beginning in verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you, among who you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous." is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the Time appointed in the month Abib, for in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep. The firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. And the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the Feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, when you read these laws... Uh, it looks like a fairly random assortment uh, of laws. It's not, a, you know, the book of the covenant that God originally gave extends for several chapters, actually, earlier in the book, and we looked at that. And these laws are just kind of selections out of that larger book of the covenant, and it seems like it's just a disorganized jumble. In fact, there are some commentators who say, well, Moses just kind of picked stuff at random and, you know, like threw it up against the wall and what stuck was, is what's here, all right? Uh, I don't think that that's what happened, in fact. Uh, but you'll notice as you read these, the Ten Commandments do not appear anywhere. They're not restated. They're not relisted. But God begins by saying, I am making a covenant, and then gives them this listing. And and if you wonder why it is that these laws and only these are here and not a much more extensive retreatment, this is what I think is the answer to that question. 
that what God is doing is he is picking out of the larger book of the covenant those laws that would help them to be restored in relationship with him and also would prevent them from going back into the same sin they had just been guilty of. And so he is trying to, in other words, uh, not all of the law applies in every circumstance, but the particular sins that they have been committing with the golden calf involve two things. They involve idolatry, and then associated with that idolatry, immorality. You may have noticed um, that God tells them not to go whoring after other gods. Well, there's a sense in which there's a, a level of uh, spiritual immorality that's represented, or spiritual adultery, because you're being unfaithful to God. But you, you, there's also a sense in which that's a literal description of what goes on in pagan worship. Because a lot of paganism involved sexual immorality as an aspect of it. Uh, in fact, if you read in Scripture about the Asherim, and the Asherah pole, and that kind of thing, that is, um, that's a carved pillar, and I'll just leave it at that. Uh, but it is a, it's a, in a, it's a, a sexual nature, and it's, in, and it's designed to inflame and excite lust in the people who are worshiping. It's a gross religion that these people are involved in. That's the reason God is going to drive out the Canaanites out of the land because it's a tempting situation that they would otherwise be in. And he says, you're not to intermix with those people. And so all these laws are meant to reemphasize the importance of faithfulness to him and that you're to worship the right God in the right way. And so he, he picks out all the laws that have to do with worship and things like don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now you go, well, what difference does that make? Uh, it wouldn't occur to me to do that. Well, the reason is, is that part of that was a pagan practice, something that the Canaanite tribes that God is going to get rid of out of the land of Israel that something that they did as part of their worship. And so you're not even to imitate the same kinds of things that they do. You're not to make alliances or make covenants with those people. Of course, later in Joshua, we'll read that they did that, in fact. In express violation of what God had told them, they did that. Made a covenant with some of these Canaanite people. And as they made alliances with them, what happened was exactly what God said, that we make alliances first on a political level, and then eventually we're invited to worship alongside them, and then eventually we're intermarried with them, and then eventually we're worshiping right alongside them. And there's a progression that's going to happen, and I want you to not imitate what they do, not practice what they practice, not worship the way they worship. Don't associate with those people. Uh, and I think there are several things here in this section of the, the chapter that are there for us to encourage us if we have failed. And, and I think step one is this, that you've got to enthusiastically embrace God's grace. Because right up front in verse 10, God tells Israel that sin does not mean 
that they are finished as his people. And a lot of times we think that. We think, well, I've blown it, and therefore God is done with me. But God tells his people, I'm not done with you. And he says right up front, I'm making a covenant with you. And he tells them all about all the marvels that he's going to do for them and all the awesome things he's going to accomplish through them, such as never been seen in, in, in the earth and never been accomplished with any other people. These are the things I'm going to do for you. Now this is right after kind of like the apex sin that the people are involved in, the one that is referred to over and over and over throughout the Old Testament as when you sinned with the calf, and when you sinned with the calf, and when you rebelled against me in the wilderness, etc. Right after that, God is, sa- is saying to these people, I'm not done with you. You're still my people. I'm, I'm going to reestablish my covenant with you, and I, and I plan to still accomplish great things with you. Uh, my dad used to say this, say this to us, uh, as kids, he would say, uh, son, if you're still alive when the smoke clears, God still has a plan for your life. <laughs> okay. And, and in a sense, that's a good encapsulation of God's grace when we blow it. That if you're still alive when the smoke clears, God still has a plan for your life. And he still has a plan for these people. And if you are sitting here today and you have blown it as big as you can imagine, God still has a plan for your life. Can I underline that for you? God still has a plan for your life. If you come to Him and admit your sin and say, Father, I don't even know how to start over, He still has a plan for your life. But then you also see in this section, step two, which is, radically separating from sin. You know, sometimes, uh, like St. Augustine famously prayed, Lord, grant me purity, but not yet. (laughs) Okay. And some of us kind of have that attitude towards sin. You know, it's not that we want to be fully engaged in it, but we like flirting with it. You know, we like dancing around in it a little bit. We don't want to be completely holy. We want to be, you know, sort of holy and still kind of being able to indulge and engage in our favorite sin. But God calls His people. He says, if you're going to be restored to joy and to relationship with me, you've got to get radical in your separation from sin. You may remember Jesus says this, something real similar. He says, if you're right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right foot leads you to sin, saw it off at the joint. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now, I don't expect anybody to get a spoon and get after it here in the pew, okay? Don't do that, in fact. But Jesus is saying radical separation from sin. God is saying to Israel, Look, you've got to purify yourself from all the remnants of your old life. There's no room for any little dark closets in the house that you just maintain as kind of remnants of your old life. You've got to be radically separated from sin. You can't draw near to it. 
You can't intermarry with it. You can't make treaties with it. You're not to be at peace with it. You're to be at war with it. You're to be at war with the kind of life you used to live. Not to make peace with it. Not to make alliances with that part of your life. That's why God tells them to destroy the Canaanites and drive them out of the land. It's why He tells them not to make gods of cast metal. Uh, It's why there could be no peace treaty with these pagans. Because the more they get at peace with paganism, the more they are drawn into it. And and it's like the it's like the camel sticking his nose under the tent and wanting to just get his nose warm. Well, if you allow the nose in, pretty soon he's going to want his head to come in. And pretty soon, once he's got foothold established, he's coming all the way in. And sin works identically the same way. Every sin aims for the utmost hold on your life. Every single one. And you can't make peace with it. You've got to be radically separated from it. Uh, Sin calls out to us. It woos us and sweet talks us. It tells us that if we just make a small compromise here, then we'll be at peace and our life will be good. But instead, we won't have peace. We'll still have war. And it'll destroy us from the inside out. And so God says, no. You get radical separation. And the third thing that you see that is a part of restoring your relationship with God is of engaging in regular worship of God Himself. He says to them, look, these three feasts you've got to go to. And you need to keep the Sabbath, which is every week you set aside time for worship and rest. Every single week. And the reason he emphasizes you know, keeping these feast days, keeping the Sabbath over and over and all that, is because he says, look, you've got to have time in your, you've got to carve out part of your time where you recognize who it is that God is. And and to bow before him in submission. And you need to understand that God, and, and he ta- tells them about sacrifices they're to make, including of their all the firstborn of their livestock and all the first fruits of their fields, and even their firstborn sons, which they're to redeem with the sacrifice of a lamb. But nevertheless, the firstborn son is to have his life devoted to serving God. So he says, look, you need to understand that I rule over the most important things in your life. The best of what you have in terms of your possessions. I rule over your time. I rule over your finances. I rule over your family. I am God. And you've got to regularly worship me if you want to stay in a growing relationship with me. You know, just as it's very hard to stay healthy, as a human being, on a you know on an irregular cycle of eating, it's real difficult to stay healthy in your relationship with God if you get irregular in your worship of God. Does that mean we have to keep the Sabbath? No, we're under a different covenant. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. 
But nevertheless, time for worship and rest that is a regular part of your life is a good thing. And it's impossible to have a relationship with God that is growing and is a living thing unless you also have regular time for worship. Uh, let's, look, let's, let's go on. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now, this is one of the strangest sections of the Bible. Uh, Moses meets with God, and his face begins to glow with the reflected glory of being in God's presence. And initially, Moses does not realize it. Now, just imagine this. Been up on the mountain 40 days. He comes down the mountain to tell people what God said, and his face is glowing. Okay, that would freak people out. Uh, and you and it did, in fact. Aaron and all the people are like, I'm not sure what happened to Moses, but that's weird. <laughs> okay. And they're not they're even afraid to come near him because I don't know what's wrong with that guy. Okay, but something has changed. He was up meeting with God and he's got a glowing face. But he calls them near and he speaks God's word to them and and then he puts a veil over his face until the next time he goes in to speak with God and then he put and then he takes the veil off says this is what the Lord says. And then he puts it back over his face until the next time he goes in to speak with God. Now, I think that the reason that God did this, because it is God's action that makes Moses' face glow, is so that the people understood that Moses is not just some nut who's off on top of the mountain somewhere having a random conversation with himself and coming down and saying, well, this is what God told me this time. He's doing it so that the people understand, no, it really is God that he's meeting with. Because this is an unusual phenomenon. If a guy tells you, I speak for God, generally speaking, I would say, don't believe him. But if, on the other hand, he goes, he goes to speak with God, and when he comes back, his face glows uh, like a light bulb, that might be a, a, a mitigating factor you need to keep into account, right? Because the likelihood that that guy is actually speaking with God is a little bit different. And it was meant to underline and to give authority to Moses' teaching. Uh, and I think in this section that God gives us another key to renewing our relationship with him, which is personally pursuing 
His presence. Personally pursuing His presence. You know, when Moses met with God, he was transformed. His face literally glowed with the reflected glory of being in God's presence. But you know what's interesting in this text? When Moses went in to speak with God, his face glowed. When he came out and told the people the same things God said to him, their faces didn't glow. Why not? Because it's being in the presence of God personally that affects the change. Amen? The same thing is true in your life and in mine. I can stand up here every week and I can read what the Scripture says and I can explain it to you to the best of my limited ability and I can, uh, I can tell you about prayer and I can tell you about what it means to read your Bible and I can tell you what God is teaching me and what things that I'm learning. But guess what? If you are not personally coming into God's presence yourself, the transformation that you experience is going to be reflected at best. It's not going to be personal to you until the Word of God is personal to you, until your relationship with God is personal to you, until the presence of God is personal to you. It's being in the presence of God that brings transformation. And, and we who lead you in worship uh, do our best to lead you into God's presence. But you still have to take personal responsibility for your own spiritual growth and life. And you still need to draw near on your own. Because whatever we do up here is not sufficient for you to bring your heart directly to the Lord. And this helps. But it's not a substitute for that. You still have to personally make a decision that I am going to come to church to worship God myself. I'm going to come and study the Scriptures myself to understand what, they, what God is speaking to me. And when we pray, I'm not just going to listen to somebody else pray. I'm going to be in prayer for these things myself. Because it's being in the presence that brings about the change. You can't get it from somebody else. You have to experience it for yourself. Chapter 35, verses 1 to 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now this is the fourth or the fifth time I've lost count that God has emphasized the keeping of the Sabbath. It's the second time in this chapter. Why do you think that is? I think it's because God thought the Sabbath was important and its purpose was to build into Israel's national life two things, worship and rest. It was a day to remember that on the one hand that God was sovereign, that he would provide for their needs, even if you didn't constantly work. 
And by the way, you know, we live in a fairly comfortable set of circumstances. Here in America in the 21st century, you know, you walk over, if it's cold, you walk over and you push a button and the heat comes on. Right? Uh, you, you turn a handle and water comes out of the sink. You know, it, this is not the way that life has normally been for most of human history. Uh, you don't even have to come to church on foot when it's cold. Now, some of us who live close by nevertheless do. Uh, and more power to you on that, by the way. Uh, but a lot of us drive to get here in something that is enclosed and heated in the winter and cool in the summer, right? Um, but for a lot of life, it was, a lot of human history, it was a subsistence existence. It wasn't living paycheck to paycheck, it was li- living harvest to harvest and hoping that you had enough grain stored away to make it until the next time you got to take some out of the field. Enough vegetables canned to get, not through the winter, but until the next time they were growing on the vine. And it was a subsistence existence, and you had to work hard every day just to make it, just to survive. And God says, set aside one day in seven and dedicate it to me, even during the harvest, even during planting, in other words, at the very busiest times for for a farmer which most of Israel would have been, even then set aside one day for me. Why? So that you can understand and put into practice in your life that I am sovereign over your time and over your provision, over your finances, that all this comes from me anyway. And you don't have to work as if somehow it's all dependent on you because I'm the one who provides for you. And also, on the other hand, it uh, protected the nation because it reminded them of his covenant with them and of the fact that at the center of that covenant was a relationship with them based on worship. And so so 52 times a year, they were reminded that God was at the center of their national life. And, you know, we're not bound, again, don't hear me say this. I'm not a Sabbatarian, okay? In fact, of all the, all the Ten Commandments uh, that are given in the Old Testament are repeated in the New Testament, except this one, keep the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus never says to believers, keep the Sabbath. Um, none of the apostles do either. But the principle it embodied still holds. And the principle, I think, is still valid that God expects us to set aside regularly time for worship, time for rest, time to remember that He is sovereign over our finances and over our time. And He, his, he intends for his, the, the worship that we offer Him to be at the center of our life and a regular part of our life and not something that we do just with whenever we happen to be motivated. It's supposed to be a regular thing. So, where are you today? Have you blown it? Do you feel like you are distant from God? Do you feel like it's been a long time since you 
understood personally what it means when David prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Maybe the joy of your salvation has been missing for a while. Maybe you can't put your finger on where things went sideways, but you want to be close to Jesus, and you miss the way that things used to be. And I want to submit to you that this chapter, this this portion of chapter 34 and 35, is like a sign that points the way home. And it gives us, if you will, the ancient pathway that points toward the Lord and toward walking with Him and what that looks like. And it's not easy, but it is simple. And it comes down to practicing four things. Number one, enthusiastically embracing God's grace. Grace is the last, best word in the Bible. And it speaks to us and says, God loves me not because of how I perform, but in spite of how I perform. Not because I am so good that God loves me, but in fact, in spite of the fact that I am regularly not good. And please understand this. If you understand nothing else about the Bible, understand this. That the Bible does not say good people know God and are saved by God and go to heaven. And bad people are rejected by God and go to hell. Biblically, there are only two kinds of people. Bad people and Jesus. That's it. Okay. He is the only good person who has ever lived. And he is also the only begotten Son of God who died on the cross for your sins. So that your sins and their penalty and their power and their presence in your life would be cleansed and covered. And his intention for you is to embrace the grace that God offers to us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have one, and you think to yourself, I could never be in relationship with God. You don't know me. I am too screwed up. Let me just explain to you. This room is full of people who are too screwed up who nevertheless are saved by the grace of God. Amen? And the church is full of people who are thoroughly screwed up, who are nevertheless saved by the grace of God. And any relationship with God, whether a new one or one that after it has begun has resulted in failure and you want to get back into your relationship with God and begin again, it begins on the same basis of grace, of embracing God's grace and the fact that He does not count our sins against us when we confess to Him and we say, God, I I blew it. I need forgiveness. Please forgive me and restore to me the joy of my salvation. And He does, and He will. And then after that, then you've got to get radically separated from sin. You need to chase it down and kill it wherever you can find it. Radical separation from sin. 
It's not something that you harbor or flirt with or see how close you can come to without really going headlong into it. Radical separation from sin. Drive it out of your life. And then regularly worshiping God. You cannot grow as a believer in Christ without regularly worshiping God personally and with your brothers and sisters. You can't do it. I know lots of people who've tried it. And I'll, I'll tell you for a fact, you can't do it. You can't do it. Because worship is at the center of what God intends for us to be about. So you've got to regularly build into your life times for worship, both personally and, and with your brothers and sisters. And then last, personally pursuing His presence. Personally pursuing His presence. There is no second-hand transformation. You know, men, trust me on this, however spiritual your wife is, it will not rub off. All right? You can't get it by osmosis. Ladies, if your husband is teaching Sunday school and an elder in this church, you will not have it, you know, be absorbed uh, by sharing a house with that man. Right? You've got to personally pursue your relationship with God. It's an individual thing. And it's being in the presence that brings about the change. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we love You. We love You because You first loved us and You lavished Your grace on us when we were undeserving and ill-deserving and wicked and running away from You as fast as possible when we shook our fists in your face and told you to get lost because we were doing our own thing and happily doing it, you reached out to us and said, I love you and I want you to be my child. And you brought us to yourself through faith in Jesus Christ and made us your sons and gave us an inheritance that cannot perish or spoil or fade and can never be taken away from us. Father, your grace is amazing. It is truly awesome that you would reach down and show love to people who rebelled against you in every way. And Father, we pray that in response we might pursue you with all that we have. That the best of our energy, the best of our time, the best of our resources would be devoted to you and to walking with you and following you and pursuing you because, Father, you alone have life. And where else can we go to find it? There is no other well which offers living water. There is no other sanctuary other than yours where joy is abundant and life is really found. And Father, we pray for any who have wandered away, who have been a long time away from You, Father, we pray that today would be the day they confess their sin and return to You 
and rejoin in sweet fellowship with you. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.